The views and opinions expressed on WXOJLP are solely those of the original hosts of their respective programs. These views and opinions do not necessarily represent those of Valley Free Radio Incorporated, its volunteers, or any other hosts, guests, or programs on this station. Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and so we will be spending some time talking about science. And in case you're just tuning in, you are listening to WXOJLP 103.3 FM, streaming live on the internet at valleyfreeradio.org. And so tonight, I figured, even though it's turned out to be not the greatest day, um, weather-wise, I wanted to talk about summertime stories, um, or summertime advice, uh, I guess. And so the first thing I wanted to talk about tonight was the importance of sunscreen and the importance of not letting people dissuade you from using sunscreen. It is extremely important. Um, and so I know that it's that time of year when people tell you various things about sunscreen, including that the ingredients are worse and will actually cause you to get cancer rather than exposure to the sun. Um, and of course, this is nothing but fear mongering. And in fact, the CDC reports that skin cancer is the most common form of cancer in the United States. The two most common types of skin cancer, basal cell and squamous cell carcinomas, are highly curable, but can be disfiguring and costly. Melanoma, the third most common skin cancer, is more dangerous and causes the most deaths. The majority of these three types of skin cancer are caused by exposure to ultraviolet or UV light. And so it's pretty straightforward. If you are out in the sun for too long and you're getting too much UV light, you are at a greater risk of developing skin cancer. And of course, many other things do contribute to the development of skin cancer. Um, there are genetic elements such as uh, your eye, hair, and skin color, which are, of course, unchangeable. Um, in essence, I mean, sure, you can dye your hair, but <laughs> um, as well as a family history of cancer. But there are definitely things that are totally and utterly in our control. And chief among those is, of course, limiting the amount of sun exposure your skin is receiving as well as specifically avoiding getting sunburns. Now, I shouldn't have to say this next bit, but I will just in case. Another huge thing to avoid is tanning. Using a tanning bed is basically the worst thing you can do other than simply spending all day, every day in the sun with very little on and no protection. There is no such thing as a safe tanning bed. All tanning beds use UV exposure, and UV exposure is what causes cancer. Very straightforward uh, <laughs> cause and effect here. Um, tanning is not your friend. Um, if you need to look bronzer, uh, look deeper skinned than you are, uh, use one of those non-chemical or a chemical 
uh, tanner that doesn't actually tan your skin. It just sort of dyes it um, <laughs> if you absolutely must. But otherwise, your skin is just fine the way it is. And the other, of course, big thing to talk about is the uh, list put out each year uh, full of dubious advice by the Environmental Working Group. This is a group of activists who often use dubious science to put out lists of scary chemicals that people should avoid. Uh, for instance, they're the ones who put out the dirty dozen fruits and vegetables that you should supposedly buy organic due to pesticide residue. And as with the dirty dozen list, EWG's concerns about sunscreen are at best wrong and at worst actively harmful. And in fact, the same can be said for the dirty dozen list. There is actually emerging proof that about uh, that concerns from people about pesticide residue on fruits and vegetables is not leading them to eat more organic because a lot of people can't afford organic. It's actually leading to a reduction in the consumption of fruits and veggies by those people who cannot afford organic. And so it's having exactly the wrong effect. And so as I am always trying to uh, put out there, there is no reason to be eating organic rather than conventional. The uh, hysteria over uh, things like uh, glyphosate is completely unfounded. And in fact, there is a new report out that the um, IARC, the uh, World Health Organization uh, committee that marked glyphosate as uh, possibly or probably carcinogenic, they actually had evidence to the contrary, but because it wasn't published yet, uh, it was ignored. And so they have said that had they had that information and it had been published, that they would have gotten a different outcome, that they would not have considered glyphosate to be probably carcinogenic. And um, there's actually some uh, discussion now as to why exactly that information has not been published, um, because it has been available for some time now. And uh, so it proves pretty conclusively through a series of studies that there is no link between glyphosate and any kind of cancer. Um, and so again, <laughs> this is scaremongering. It is not actually doing anybody any good. Okay, so let's get back to sunscreen though. And let's talk about why they think it's so bad. Well, there are two big chemicals that are used in sunscreen, and they're actually both in the sunscreen that I currently have, and will freely admit don't apply often enough. <laughs> um, and those are avobenzone and oxybenzone. Now, oxybenzone has been shown to have a number of possible worrisome effects. When it absorbs ultraviolet light, some of the energy produced is admitted as free radicals, which are highly energetic molecules that can damage cells. 
and it also undergoes a reaction that causes it to produce a compound called semiquinone, which can inactivate some naturally occurring antioxidants in the skin. It can also be considered potentially an endocrine disruptor because its compound can mimic the behavior of estrogens. However, many, many things have that same exact property. And it's very important to note that not a single study has shown that there are any adverse health outcomes linked to the use of oxybenzone in sunscreen. Now, the only known possible side effect is photodermatitis, which causes the skin to look aged or weathered. And so this is why other compounds are added to sunscreens, which guard against this possible skin aging effect. Now, newer formulas include the use of tetraphalidine dicamphor sulfonic acid, which uh, is usually listed under the trade name Meroxyl or Mexoral. And some other products are using micronized titanium dioxide and zinc oxide. Now, if you can find a good uh, sunscreen with titanium dioxide and or zinc oxide, those are actually some of the better ones because titanium and zinc dioxide are what are referred to as barrier compounds. They actually block the UV light from reaching the skin. And so ideally, we'd be slathering ourselves with that. However, traditional applications are greasy and leave white streaks on the skin. Uh, think of the uh, white strips that uh, lifeguards traditionally put on their noses that is uh, either titanium or zinc oxide or a combination of the two. And so it makes it a hard sell for a broad range of, well, frankly, often beauty conscious consumers. Other ingredients that sunscreens may have, um, such as retinol palmate, meant to help, again, stop photoaging, uh, have also been questioned. However, the Environmental Working Group's concerns about this chemical were based on an inconclusive study in rodents that wasn't even submitted for peer review. And so a newer 2009 study showed no evidence of photogenotoxicity. Um, but actually, the more important thing to think about um, is of whether or not we should be using this is that there's actually not terribly much evidence that it actually does prevent uh, skin damage. So if it's not actually helping, then I'm all for getting rid of it. Uh, not because it might have any kind of effect on people, but because it's not working, why have it in there? And so I think that really all of this comes down to the uh, issue of the new and rather disturbing tendency for people to be scared of chemicals, especially ones that have that they have trouble pronouncing. But the fact is, is that everything is made of chemicals, many of them hard to pronounce. We shouldn't let fear get in the way of a known good. And the known risks of developing skin cancer, in my opinion, far outweigh the potential risk of the chemicals used, which, by the way, do have to be approved by the FDA because they are treated as drugs. 
And so in a report at one point um, to the NHS or the um, NIH, excuse me, the National Institute of Health, um, part of a summary read as thus. To summarize, the risk of not protecting your skin far outweighs any risk of toxicity from sunscreen. Put another way, the benefit of sun protection is so high that it far outweighs that of the small and unproven risk of exposure to the chemicals in sunscreen. So, pretty straightforward. Skin protection, including wearing protective clothing, hats, sunglasses, and sunscreen, is essential for avoiding skin cancer. Now, some people may still develop skin cancer due to the fact that early exposure as children can actually uh, increase your chances of developing cancer, especially of developing melanoma, quite a bit. Um, so unfortunately, the bad news is, is that if you weren't as careful as you should have been as a child, or you have a history of developing skin cancer in your family tree, you may still be in trouble, but you should still continue to do everything you can to prevent it. Now, as far as what kind of sunscreen you should get, uh, it turns out that they're pretty much all the same. Um, just make sure that it guards against both UVA and UVB rays or says, um, full spectrum, uh, because it actually, it used to be able to say full spectrum and not have that actually be, uh, what it was, but the FDA has cracked down on that. So if it's full spectrum, it should be, or broad spectrum, I should say, um, and that it is at least SPF 15. Um, higher SPFs, they're not, you shouldn't pay more for a higher SPF. Uh, if the 30 and the 50 are the same price, grab the 50. It'll just be a little bit better. Um, but if the 30 is less expensive or the 15, get those. Um, because the higher you go in the SPF, the, the sort of less of a gain in protection you're getting. Um, and so make sure to reapply it often, but uh, try for no more than two hour intervals, even if it says sweat proof or waterproof. And again, spray, lotion, doesn't matter. Either is fine. Just make sure to avoid getting the spray in your eyes or your mouth, you know, the usual uh, caveats. And um, do try and apply it about 15 minutes before you go out into the sun. And of course, remember sunglasses because you can actually uh, get a sunburn in your eyes. You can develop skin cancer in your eyes. Um, and so, yeah. And just as one more uh, thing about sunscreen, if it actually, <laughs> if it actually says chemical free on the sunscreen, leave it on the shelf um, because frankly, the people who made it don't understand science. So don't buy anything from someone who doesn't understand science because literally, unless it has chemicals in it, uh, if there are no chemicals in the bottle, that means there's nothing in the bottle. <laughs> Quite literally. Um, okay. So let us move on now and talk about a different summertime worry. So if you're going to be going to the beach, especially if you're going to be going to the beach somewhere with warm water, you are at risk of being stung by a jellyfish or a siphonophore. And we can talk about the difference between the two animals in a minute, but the advice turns out to be the same for a sting from either. Now, there is to start 
obviously an old wives' tale, that urine will help neutralize a jellyfish sting. This is incorrect, so don't let anyone try it on you, because in fact, it can potentially make things even worse. Also, don't try rinsing it in seawater, because this just spreads the stingers around on your body and again, can make it worse. And don't try uh, pulling out the stingers by scraping with a credit card, which many people suggest, because it turns out that the pressure applied might very well, again, cause the stingers to inject more venom into the site and make things worse. And so these animals have a supremely well-designed weapon used in both offense and defense. Um, and so the tentacles of these animals have harpoon-like cells called nematocysts. And so these nematocysts basically have a uh, coiled up harpoon inside of the cell with a hair trigger. And so when you brush against the, uh, the tentacles, um, the pressure is enough that they spring open and inject the venom pretty much so fast that you need a high-speed camera in order to film it. When I first started doing this research, I was surprised that a lot of this advice doesn't really come from science, says Christy Wilcox, a venom scientist at the University of Hawaii and co-author of two recent studies on jellyfish and siphonophore sting treatments. One study, the first study looked at jellyfish and the, again, the other looked at siphonophores such as Portuguese men of war. Um... And as I noted, it turns out that the advice is actually the same, which was a surprising result because previous advice when dealing with siphonophore stings was to rinse the area with salt water, which turns out to not be correct. And actually, it's speci it specifically advised against what turns out to be the go-to um, compound, which is the use of vinegar. Without solid science to back up medical practices, we have ended up with conflicting official recommendations around the world, leading to confusion and, in many cases, practices that actually worsen stings or even cost lives, said Pacific Sinidaria Research Laboratory Scientist and Study Co-Author Angela Yanagara, Yanagahara excuse me, in a statement. And so the team used a set of experimental assays developed by Yanagahara to test the various recommended treatments for stings. And so what does it turn out that they suggest to actually do? First, you should douse the area with vinegar. And in fact, many beaches actually do have vinegar on hand, especially places that have a lot of um, jellyfish or siphonophores. And so this does rinse away the tentacles and it deactivates the stinging cells. Then you should pluck off the tentacles uh, that remain with tweezers, if at all possible, but just be as delicate as possible. Then apply heat, um, if you can, in the form of hot water uh, for about 45 minutes, or you can use a heat pack. You can also use a spray that's called Sting No More, <laughs> which was apparently developed by the Department of Defense uh, in a grant to uh, develop it for combat divers. 
Now, most people actually recommend that you add ice, but this just numbs the area and can actually even preserve or heighten the action of the toxic venom. Heat, on the other hand, denatures the venom and, venom and permanently deactivates it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that is basically the long and the short of it. Vinegar, get all of the tentacles off of you, and then heat, not cold. Now, just a couple of uh, quick fun facts. So you probably know that jellyfish are single animals, weird single animals, but single animals, uh, whereas siphonophores, like uh, Portuguese uh, man of wars, are actually colonial creatures. And so what looks like one animal is actually a collection of medusoid and polypoid zooids. And so they are tiny little animals that have distinct and specialized functions. And so they come together to form the larger animal. And they basically can't live apart. They have to live as this larger collective organism. And so in some ways, they're almost like a macroscopic version of a collection of cells that create a creature. And so that is fun fact number one. And fun fact number two is that researchers aren't actually quite sure uh, just yet as to why vinegar is the preferred treatment. Now, an acid solution makes sense, but other acid solutions did not have the same effect. So there must be something unique about the makeup of vinegar that helps to deactivate the venom, the venom of the jellyfish and siphonophores. But we're not sure what that is yet. <laughs> so, hmm... <laughs> definitely a study for another day. Okay, so we are now going to completely switch gears and talk about, well, space. <laughs> uh, it always seems to come around sooner or later. Um, astronomy has really been hot in the last few years, making really big discoveries and doing all sorts of fun things and trying to go places and have lots of incredible rovers out there and uh, probes and such. And it's really been pretty impressive. And so we were just talking about some creatures that frankly are pretty darn alien compared to humans. Uh, but let's switch gears and talk about a signal that some still hope came from aliens from not in the ocean, but rather in outer space. Um, so yeah, definitely, uh, think it might be from an outer space alien rather than the sort of inner space, uh, aliens that live in the ocean. And, um, you've probably heard of it before. It is called the wow signal. <laughs> uh, you've almost certainly heard of it before. And if you haven't, basically the reason it's called a wow signal is that, um, back in 77, when it was discovered, the researcher who was there listening um, and looking at the printouts actually circled it and wrote wow uh, next to it. And so the signal was picked up by the Big Ear Radio Telescope at Ohio State University way back in August 15th of 1977. It was a 72-second burst of sound, uh, quote-unquote, that was a narrow bandwidth signal which corresponds to many artificial signals. 
And for years, people have been trying to find the signal again, but have been unable. And in fact, at one point, they actually sent a signal out into that part of space to try and see if maybe there actually was someone on the other end who could receive it. Um, and so the telescope itself has actually been dismantled. But at the time, it was actually looking for signs of alien life as part of the very early days of the uh, SETI project or the search for extraterrestrial life. And so a new research paper published in the Journal of the Washington Academy of Sciences um, and with a lead author, uh, Antonio Paris, who is an astronomer at St. Peter Petersburg College in Florida, and also a researcher with the Center of Planetary Science, he suggests that the signal was caused by a comet. The 266P Christ Christensen comet, to be precise, which was only discovered and cataloged back in 2006. And now Paris actually originally suspected another comet called P2008Y Gibbs. Now, they became... They began looking for comets whose hydrogen cloud might have been responsible for the signal. Both comets had been in the area of the sky being observed by the Big Ear years ago and would have moved out of range of it quickly enough to prevent a repeated signal from being recorded at the time. The team was lucky enough that they were able to test their hypothesis when the two comets appeared in the sky between November 2016 and February 2017. They found that the signal matched the 1420 megahertz of the original signal. And so this is actually in the hydrogen band, which it's one of those places that SETI usually says that you'll probably find signals from aliens in because it's a relatively quiet uh, zone otherwise. And so they found that when they moved their telescope away from the comet, the signal stopped. And when they observed three other comets, comets randomly chosen, they also detected radio signals at 1420 megahertz. So that sounds pretty conclusive, right? Well, not so fast. As with everything in science, you need to be able to defend your position against alternative hypotheses and skepticism. And in fact, Jerry Ehrman, the astronomer who originally detected the signal, is in fact skeptical. We do not believe the two-comet theory can explain the wow signal, he told Live Science. Now, while they don't deny the comets are emitting radio signals, they don't believe that this is the explanation for the signal, since its chief characteristic was that it was of very short duration and, importantly, that it did not repeat. This is a key reason for their skepticism. The original Big Ear telescope had two, quote, feed horns, each of which provided a slightly different view of the sky in order to allow for precise measuring. What is so unique about the wow signal is that it was heard by only one of the feed horns, which can only be explained as being because either the signal cut off suddenly, which wouldn't happen in the case of a comet, or if there was a glitch in the system. It may turn out, after all, that the signal was nothing more than a glitch, though obviously that has been, 
they've tried to test that out over the years. It could also have been what astronomers referred to as a fast radio burst or an FRB. FRBs are mysterious radio, radio, radio bursts that astrophysicists are still trying to understand and that generate irregular signals that last only milliseconds, which would explain why only one cone would have caught the signal. The issue with the feed horns is something no one can explain, including me, Paris said. There is some data out there to suggest the issue at the telescope, the issue is at the telescope end and not the phenomena itself. So again, for now, the debate continues. Now, perhaps this exploration into the wow signal will maybe perhaps give us a better understanding of FRBs, or maybe it will continue to give us a tantalizing bit of hope uh, for those who really believe that the aliens are out there, uh, that there is still some vague hope that they did indeed manage to glimpse a tiny snippet of communication. Um, but I'm not really uh, going to hold my breath on that one. All right, let us take a uh, break for a second and we will come back and talk about some more uh, space related stories. But let us take a break for just a moment for some PSAs and such. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hey, Lieutenant Colonel Reverend Eubanks, Junie the Third here, your humble host of the Double Bubble Hour, now on every Sunday night from 8 till 9 p.m., WXOJLP 103.3 FM, or tune in on valleyfreeradio.org. 3,600 seconds of fun. Forbes Library offers free access to computers and now they are equipped with tools to make them easier to use if you are blind or have low vision. When you come into Forbes Library, you will find computers with JAWS screen reading and magnification software installed. Trained library staff are available to get you started. 
These services were brought to you with federal funds provided by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and administered by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners. Call 413-587-1012 to find out more. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. iHeartJRock with DJ Sakura is on Saturday mornings at 12 to 2 a.m. on WXOJ LP 103.3 FM in Northampton. And you can stream us on valleyfreeradio.org. iHeartJRock will be playing rock music from Japan, uh, J-Rock, J-Pop, and some DK. Uh, if you like that stuff, give my show a listen, please. And also follow me on Twitter at DJ Sakura 666 Thank you. Great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play. But kids aren't the only ones outdoors. Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent, bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and developed fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. Hey, kids. It's Archie and Dave from Pothby Geekery. What are you doing, Dave? You're listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJ 103.3 FM in Northampton, Massachusetts. Okay, we are back, and we are going to continue to talk about space-type stories for another little bit. Okay, so this one is a story that came out recently. Uh, So, you may have heard about this. There is a... uh, There was a research project where uh, researchers from Tufts University sent 15... Dugasia japonica flatworms into space uh, to circle the Earth in the International Space Station for five weeks. And so before being launched into space, each worm was, well, cut in half. Now, this may seem cruel and counterintuitive, uh, but the reason these worms are so interesting to science is because they have the unique ability to regenerate each half into a whole new worm. And so the researchers have been studying these flatworms actually for over 18 years. They have a colony now that contains over 15,000 of these remarkable worms. And in all of that time, they've never had a worm do what one of those 15 space flatworms did, which is that instead of growing a new tail end, one one worm grew another head. So it ended up having two heads at each end of its body. And what's even more crazy is that this wasn't just a fluke misfiring of genes. When they brought it back down and they divided it again, it made two more two-headed worms, which means that there was a fundamental change in the invertebrate's genetic or epigenetic code. And so the other flatworms also suffered from various stresses due to their trip through space, but none of these changes were so dramatic. So all of the worms were watched for around 20 months after they returned from space, and the researchers found changes to their microbiomes, 
as compared with flatworms that stayed on Earth. And they also um, had some different behaviors when exposed to light. Um, and so the researchers who published their findings in the journal Regeneration suggest that the lack of both a gravitational and magnetic fields in space may have played a part in how the flatworm physiology was stressed and ultimately changed. Now, previous research in flatworms has suggested that the Earth's magnetic field actually influences how the flatworm's basic structure is uh, grown. And so, therefore, it makes sense that being in microgravity, um, that is also not uh, as close to Earth's magnetic field, might disrupt this relationship, causing the physiological differences seen in the 15 space flatworms. Yes, I just really do like saying space flatworms. <laughs> um, that is also a great indie band name. Uh, anyways, <laughs> now this was only the first experiment of this kind, and only one flatworm uh, developed this crazy uh, two-headed mutation. So obviously, more experimentation will have to be done in order to see if this is a true issue of space being bad for flatworm growth and regeneration or just a weird one of one in a million fluke now you may be wondering what if anything does this have to do with humans in space and the action and the answer is that it potentially does have something to do so flatworms have actually been used in research on aging uh, regeneration and other and other physiological aspects of growth and development that can be pertinent to human health and speaking of that, uh, the second story here that is sort of related to this is that a new report has suggested that the risk of cancer for astronauts heading out to Mars may in fact have been underestimated, perhaps by as much as one half. <laughs> so a team from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, suggests that cells not specifically hurt by radiation are still potentially damaged. We learned that the damaged cells send signals to the surrounding unaffected cells and likely modify the tissue's microenvironments. Those signals seem to inspire the healthy cells to mutate, thereby causing additional tumors or cancers, stated lead researcher Francis Cuchinoda. This effect was first noticed back in 1992 and has been reaffirmed by the latest research. Because cosmic rays are a form of ionizing radiation, they can harm the body in several ways, which includes causing cancer, but also circulatory disease and a range of other issues. And obviously, if you're going to go to Mars, Mars does not have the Earth, the same uh, magnetosphere or atmosphere that Earth does. And so all of the things that we have on Earth that protect us from that cosmic ray um, ionizing radiation are not available both in interstellar space or in interplanetary space between Earth and Mars. And even when you get to Mars... Getting there doesn't really give you any uh, protection back. And so that can potentially be a big problem. 
And so Kutsuneta's team, um, Kutsunada's team suggests that tests on the possible damage for radiation haven't been long enough or thorough enough. And so one of the things they point to are reports from the Mars Curiosity rover, which indicates that the equipment was exposed to radiation up to a thousand times more uh, potent than would be experienced on the surface of the Earth. Exploring Mars will require missions of 900 days or longer and include more than one year in deep space, where exposure to all energies of galactic cosmic ray heavy ions are unavoidable, says Kusanoda. Current levels of radiation shielding would at best modestly decrease the exposure risk. So it seems very likely that we will need to think much more about this issue before we try to send anyone to the red planet to try and set up a colony or outpost, no matter what Elon Musk says. <laughs> Waving or increasing acceptable level acceptable risk levels raises serious ethical flags if the true nature of the risks are not sufficiently understood, says Kusanoda. So again, if you're thinking that going to Mars is a great idea and you want to book your ticket, uh, you might want to reconsider and spend some time thinking a little bit harder about whether or not you want to be exposed to uh, terrible, deadly cosmic rays. Um, and so just as a vague aside, uh, going to the moon just in case someone is thinking, haha, this is yet another reason why we couldn't have gone to the moon. Of course, the moon is much, 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 much closer to the Earth than Mars is. And so the overall exposure was not insignificant, but it was much more manageable than um, getting to Mars. So we definitely landed on the moon. Let's just, just please, please, we need to stop pretending that there was any possibility that we didn't land on the moon. Anyways, <laughs> um, let us move on and talk about something completely different again. <laughs> so I just saw this sort of headline and I realized, oh, I definitely want to talk about that because that's something that could be potentially very confusing to people. So let's talk about a new study that suggests that mixing vitamin C with antibiotics is helpful in killing off cancer stem cells. This is the kind of story that I can immediately see having uh terrible being terribly misrepresented in the news as some sort of uh you know crazy uh you know all you need to do is drink tons of orange juice and you'll be cured of cancer no <laughs> um again i want to talk to you about this because it's a neat result but it is very important to note uh, several things. For instance, this is something that has so far only been reproduced in a petri dish setting, in a lab setting. The technique hasn't even been put into animal testing yet. So it's very important to keep in mind that this is just a cool result right now um, in a lab that has no real actual impact on uh, what is going on in potential medicinal um, applications. And 
Again, importantly, this is not some sort of vindication uh, for Linus Pauling that megadoses of vitamin C can cure cancer. Do not try to cure your cancer with megadoses of vitamin C. In fact, don't bother taking extra vitamin C because it is a water-soluble vitamin, which means your body just excretes what it doesn't need. (laughs) Uh, But let's talk about what this work does show, at least potentially. So a team from the University of Salford, Indi- of Salford, England, is building on previous work that they've done. And so what they did was they looked at vitamin C and found that it helps to kill off uh, CSCs or cancer stem cells. And so if successful, and that's a big if, it could potentially help treat tumors and reduce the time or reduce the um possibility of relapse. Now, this is at least, uh, I should say, this is potentially true for breast cancer cells, because that is currently what the team has been focusing on. So not only is this just in the lab, but it's also only in one kind of cancer. And as I talked about in a recent uh, program, if not last week, uh, Cancer is not a thing, it is many things, and so uh, what works for breast cancer might not work for other cancers. Um, It might. It might be something that just because it's a basic mechanism, it works for all kinds of cancers, but it could also potentially not. So that's another reason why an abundance of caution is warranted when speaking about these things. And so, again, let's talk about what they did. The team used a mix of doxycycline and vitamin C, uh, which is also referred to as ascorbic acid. And so what they did was they took that mixture and they compared its its ability to kill cancer cells with the anti-cancer agent 2-deoxy-D-glucose. And they found that the mix of antibiotic and vitamin was up to a hundred times more effective at killing off CSCs. And so the antibiotic, it turns out, robs the cancerous cells of the ability to switch energy sources to stay alive, forcing them to use glucose as their sole uh, fuel source. And so that is called making these cells, quote unquote, metabolically inflexible. (laughs) And so this actually kills off some of the cancer cells just at the first pass. Uh, But the problem is, is that things like this don't get all of them. And so this actually turns out to be a possible mechanism um, as to why some tumors may become drug resistant because they end up being able to switch to an alternative source of nutrient uh, faster than they can be killed off. But it turned out that if you combined the antibiotic with the vitamin C, you get sort of a one-two punch, wherein the antibiotic limits the cell's metabolism and the vitamin C removes the available glucose so that the CSCs starve to death more quickly before they can switch metabolites. In this scenario, vitamin C behaves as an inhibitor of glycosis, glycolysis, which fuels energy production in mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, says one of the team, Frederick Sotkia. 
And the nice thing is that both components are non-toxic to healthy cells. And so this would most likely uh, not feature any of the nasty side effects that some chemotherapy drugs have. This is further evidence that vitamin C and other non-toxic compounds may have a role to play in the fight against cancer, explains another member of the team, Michael Lisanti. Our results indicate it is a promising agent for clinical trials and as an add-on to more conventional therapies to prevent tumor reoccurrence, further disease progression, and metastasis. But again, I cannot stress enough that it this is the first stage of the research, and so it is many years away from having clinical applications, even if it makes that makes it that far. Medicine is littered with promising drugs that were once moved from the petri dish to the mouse or from the mouse to the human only to have failed and did not then thus live up to their promise. Uh, but we keep fighting and we are definitely in an age where more and more diseases will be able to be cured or at least managed well uh, with modern medicine. And so I think it's really important that we uh, are both cautious with our uh, interest in these things, but also uh, continue to be interested in all of these great ways in which we might be able to fight diseases like cancer without having to deal with uh, drugs that have serious side effects um, or resorting to things like radiation Um it's very exciting to be able to think about not having to deal with those sorts of things. Okay. All right. So now let us uh, <laughs> turn to a completely different story again. Totally switching gears again. Uh, this is a rather uh, heartwarming story, I guess, uh, of a painting that was recently uncovered in Antarctica. And so it turns out that the New Zealand Antarctic Heritage Trust has found an 118-year-old watercolor of a small bird by famed polar explorer Dr. Edward Wilson. And so the painting, entitled uh, Tree Creeper from 1899, was found while paper conservator Josephine Bergmark Jimenez uh, was cleaning out a hut in Cape Adair. And so she was looking through a portfolio covered in dust, mold, and uh, penguin excreta. <laughs> and she came upon the hidden treasure. I opened it up. I opened it and there was this gorgeous painting, she said in a statement. I got such a fright that I jumped and shut the portfolio again. I then took the painting out and couldn't stop looking at it. The colors, the vibrancy, it is such a beautiful piece of work. I couldn't believe it was there. And so um, Wilson, it turns out, was a British physician, uh, but was better known for his painting and uh, also apparently his Antarctic explorations. So during his Antarctic expeditions, he sketched and painted many of the local animals. Unfortunately, Wilson died in 1912, returning to Europe from the South Pole. And so he, uh, his life was cut short, but uh, it's likely that Wilson painted it while he was recovering from tuberculosis in Europe. Um, 
birthday note. And uh, clearly, he could have taken the painting to Antarctica on either of Scott's expeditions. But we think it's more likely the artwork traveled with him in 1911 and somehow made its way from Cape Evans to Cape Adair. Now, the bird uh, is very beautiful, um, but it was almost certainly collected as a specimen um and so it's more of a still life um uh, and so it's painted um beautifully but it is definitely uh clearly not alive um and uh so it is a very lovely painting but uh do note that it is not a live bird it is a uh dead bird um unfortunately but it it is painted very beautifully um with obviously a lot of care and um attention to detail and so yes that is um and of course, it's always great to find sort of, uh, you know, things that we thought either didn't exist or were lost. And then all of a sudden, we're just able to be like, oh, okay, there it is. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that is a very cool outcome. All right. So lastly, tonight, I want to talk about... Um, AIs. And so just for a few seconds, because there's a whole bunch of stories that were out recently. Um, and so they've been talking about AIs. So um, one of them just beat uh, Ms. Pac-Man. Uh, of course, there are the ones that have beat Go players, chess players. Uh, and so they just keep getting better and better. But sometime... <laughs> Sometimes they do weird things. And so um, sometimes they're asked to do really funny things like name uh, painting, paint colors, new paint colors or things like that. And so there is actually one particular blog uh, that is run by someone who is creating uh, neural networks. And so a neural network is basically meant to work like a brain. And so it is doing a whole bunch of fun things like creating new Dungeons and Dragons spells and new paint colors and uh, new names for small rodentia. <laughs> um, and so... It is a great, um, it is a great Tumblr. It's a Tumblr, I know, but trust me, it's worth it. And I will put a link on the Facebook page where you can find me, obviously, during the week as well. Um, it is called Lewis and Quark, uh, at tum, uh, dot tumblr dot com is the, uh, URL for it. And, um, it is pretty hilarious. And so I just thought that uh, because there's been so many recent stories about AIs that I'll put that out there uh, and you can look at some of the amazing things that this particular neural network is doing. Um, they're quite hilarious. Uh, several people, including a physicist I know, uh, have noted that this is pretty much the best piece of, of entertainment on the internet right now. So I will link to that. And with that, I will finish up for tonight. Please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next.